Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. Oh, sorry. I thought it was a silent picture. And I'm the Machine. Sorry, there's a title card that came up, but this is an audio podcast. And so you do not see that it says, <laughs> my name is Dave. It's a good bit. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. You should know if you're listening to this episode, but this is something of a tradition on this show. We're currently in kind of this intermediary period between seasons and what we normally do is we go and catch up on some films maybe that we have not seen in yesteryear basically using the letterboxd top 250 movies as our guide so we are going actually way back in time to 1924 but the machine still turns our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself and today we're going to be watching the movie sherlock jr I did not check this. I'm assuming the trailer, in quotes, on YouTube, is this a, probably a lot of like little jaunty piano music playing? I don't know. So that's probably what people heard yeah. when Will I throw it to the trailer? trailer. So we'll see. A fan made one or something. <laughs> With the modern music. Modernized Buster Keaton. Dum, 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 dum. Yeah, just a, a Hans Zimmer score is like boom as he kind of has a Some like bike four. or a, yeah, the bike goes across two uh, two vans. It's like boom, and then he kind of falls into the back of the car, boom, and then you know other oh. things that happen in this movie. You know, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions, of course, help us continue the show. Since you know the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies, but each month we do a bonus episode over there. Have you picked what our bonus episode from 1982 is going to be, Dave? Uh, sorry, what are we talking about? I zoned up for a second. Uh, that's part and parcel of this show. I'm wondering if you have picked the bonus episode that we're mm -hmm. going to be talking about on Patreon this month. Uh, that one. Okay, great. Well, we'll yeah. TBA on that one. One thing that a lot of people <laughs> tune into this show for is not just our discussion of classic film, but of course to advance the deep and rich fiction that this podcast is known far and wide about. So mm -hmm. to catch mm -hmm. some people up, 1982 was a bit of a whirlwind for us because we found ourselves literally in the year 1982 due to some space-time confusion. We had this run-in with this like arch nemesis, Dee Dee Hess, who was this dentist who was stealing money from us and then was chasing us through the back half of the season. I'm telling you, it did pay off pretty well there was highs there was lows there was character arcs there was development uh, seen throughout the season the likes of which one reviewer online has stated was passable so <laughs> is that true that's great no, no. <laughs> but i'm sure that's probably what someone out there has said dave you and i were were tied up by dd hess last week and we I were able we... to okay yeah we were able yeah. to escape I knocked my head against the button, and now we've been traveling through space and time for an entire week. So we probably should stop wormhole? and where see did that come from? where, I don't know, but let's stop and see where we actually are. I'm going to get you to push that big button. It's always, it's surprising how we don't notice this many buttons mm -hmm. all the time. Why didn't we press them earlier? Well, the uh, year counter is spinning. Yeah. And the first number is the two. Is that right? Does, I've lost my ability two. to decipher numerical uh, symbols. So that does mean that we are going to be going to a year somewhere 
in the 2000s, Dave. That's this pretty is, exciting. Yeah, because mm-hmm. then we'll watch films we probably have seen before and mm-hmm. can uh, have even more controversial opinions about. Well, yeah, at least some of us. So more on that as we go <laughs> on. DDS, we have tied up in the back room ourselves. So oh, she's still with us. I thought we murdered around, her and dumped but, uh, her out of the wormhole. Oh, no, she's still here. Well, maybe that's what we can do at the end of this episode, just to tie that <laughs> plot thread up in a tiny bow. Your storytelling dexterity is truly frightening. Before we get into talking about this film, the last thing we should do is I have a correction. And Dave, you're going to laugh at me because I made a fool of myself with a comment that I made on a previous episode. This is during our My Favorite Year episode from a few weeks ago. Okay. When we were talking about Peter O'Toole. And I mentioned that one of the characters was played by this man named Adolf Green. That was correct. That is what his name is. I mentioned that he was part of a songwriting team called Compton and Green, which is also correct. I was right on that. And I made the stupid comment then to the, the follow that that said, you know, they wrote Singing in the Rain, the song. That is not correct. Matthew wrote to me directly and was like, you really need to check your facts. They did not write the song Singing in the Rain. What they did do, so I'm kind of right, is that they wrote the movie Singing in the Rain. They wrote the actual like screenplay for Singing in the Rain. Ah. They did not write the song. The song comes from 1929 by music by Nacio Herb Brown, lyrics by Arthur Freed. So I apologize for my boneheaded mistake. If I said that, I don't think anyone would care, would care. But Kyle, uh, we hold you to a higher standard mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you're obsessed with this shit and you really ought to know better. So I'm disappointed. I, I know. Uh, have a lot of reflection here. This is also made so much more plain because if you have gone and seen the movie Babylon, this is actually mentioned, sort of, kind of. There's, there's a whole scene in the rain subplot that runs through that movie. Good. A movie I'm afraid to say I absolutely hated, but that's just <laughs> beside the point. <laughs> I can't start reviewing current movies. That's an entirely different project, right? Entirely different project. Well, then let's go way back in time. We're talking about 1924, almost 100 years ago. Dave, what is your history with Mr. Buster Keaton? Yeah, I'm, I don't think I've ever watched an entire Buster Keaton feature film, but wow, okay. I love Buster Keaton as has been presented to me in clips or uh, not memes, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's just basically, yeah, I know about the house and the train and the tightrope walking and all these things that he's done inside of his short and feature film career. But kind of like we talked about Charlie Chaplin uh, last year, I don't know if I've sat down and watched, like, for example, Sherlock Jr. I haven't seen this as a movie. I also know them as call-outs because I'm such a big Jackie Chan fan. I mean, using physical comedy, uh, slapstick and parody is such a direct inspiration from uh, Buster Keaton. Yeah, I mean, the there is a very obvious through line from Buster Keaton to Jackie Chan because Jackie Chan says himself that that is who he was emulating like that's right (laughs) it is is right there I was on Criterion and the latest collection other than like seven movies we've already reviewed and we had to fucking pay for it isn't it so frustrating Criterion really needs to call us first come to us and not put stuff on their service after we've talked about them so they're doing screwball comedies from the 50s through the 60s and the montage they put together like five of them, uh, five of the scenes are from this movie. It's right. it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's like the idea of physical humor. I mean, I don't think that Buster Keaton would have invented it. We have a vaudeville tradition. We have like yes. uh, theater, but he definitely gave it a tone and a shape that uh, we are still trying to uh, master. There's two things about that. I do want to circle back to what makes Buster Keaton 
different than Charlie Chaplin, the other big name from the silent era. And there is also, I should just say it, Harold Lloyd is like the top three that they normally refer to. Harold Lloyd is the one that I actually have the least amount of knowledge of. I don't know if I've actually seen a Harold Lloyd film. I've seen a bunch of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton stuff, though. But before we circle back to that, I was listening to another podcast here the other day, and they made this comment, so I'm gonna, I'm just going to steal it. There seems to be the three people in the history of movies that really made, hey, we're doing this for real as basically their brand. Like this, oh, okay. is, that is part of the like reason from, why you want to see their movies. Work. All right. Right. Tom Cruise. There's definitely been yeah. stunt work, but like there is um, Buster Keaton. was like, yeah. that was part of the reason like, hey, he's doing this actually yeah, on camera for real. he should be dead every scene. Yeah. Second is Jackie Chan. Is like, you saw all the outtakes at the end of most of his films. Like, oh God, why didn't he die? And the third one is basically late stage Tom Cruise, which yeah. is like part of the reason you go and see the new Mission Impossible. Is like he was actually you running and jumped across die. that roof yeah. for real. <laughs> so <laughs> You're like, I saw him uh, do the promo. So I know he isn't going to die, but yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure he ought to have. Yeah. That's exciting. It doesn't happen as often as you might expect, but there are these like tent poles throughout the years of like other people have done their own stunts, but not as involved or as crazy as what those three people have done. Yeah, I think Tom for sure saw an opening. I mean, he's a nutter and probably wanted to do it mm-hmm. for an adrenaline rush. He definitely sees the marketing opportunity and he has the physicality. I mean, whatever yeah. Scientology is doing to his genes. You know, he's over 60 and he can still sprint. So that's fascinating. It's so true. Me turning 40 this year, I can barely sprint anymore. No, like, oh, God. You're going to hang off a fucking plane? No, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> I, I can hardly ride in one, right? Yeah. I'm not going to be outside. Uh, Jackie Chan's still out there. I feel like when. Uh, what was the first Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise really pushed that he was doing? Was it? I think it was early four. Three? The one on the Burj Khalifa is the one that I remember. Like that was the big one. Is it Ghost Protocol? Who cares? Yeah. Uh, I like that movie a lot. At that point, I think a lot of actors were asked to do their own stunts because it mm-hmm. was becoming so apparent when they would do the body double switch. Um, but you're right. Like people don't market themselves as I'm going to kill myself for you type of uh, filmmaking. Again, I know we bring them up literally every episode, it seems. If we're just going to use the Marvel people, right? Like they'll come on like, hey, I did this scene for real. But right. It's like one scene and everything else is like that was a stunt double or it's CGI. Yep. Like that is the, <laughs> the two options. There's too much money too, right? This is oh, where yeah. t- only Tom Cruise can do this because well, what, like, what, what is I it? don't think he's even insured because you couldn't insure him. There was some crazy number. I think the last... Mission Impossible movie was it like a billion dollar insurance policy they had to it take out? To it was something wild, anyways. Yeah. It's like you could kill yourself, and if you do, then it's not just his job; it's the job of every person in the production mm-hmm. team, like all the market. Anyways, uh, Helen wants to watch National Geographic. Bear Grylls takes all the celebrities yeah. on the thing, and Simu Liu is on. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, that hot on him, but we were watching them here. They were here in the Rockies. I'm pretty sure they were in Banff, just by mm-hmm. the the tone of it. Could be Jasper, and they're in sub zero temperatures, and they're making him do an ice bath. And I was like, uh, I was being an asshole because Helen's really into it. I'm like, there's no way this is actually happening in real life because this guy's <laughs> worth way too much money to Kevin Feige to die of hypothermia in the right. middle of a mountain range. So it's different, I think. You know, he does his martial arts and I'm sure he does half the choreography where they have to have his face in the shot. We're not at the point where we're deep faking that, but he isn't uh, tying himself <laughs> To the side of a plane or whatever. What's Tom Cruise doing in this one? It's already, is he, he's on another it's some plane. Some sort of base jump that he's jumping from. Yeah. I saw the thing where him and the director are standing on the wing of an airplane, mm-hmm. like a prop. Plane. That was just the promo, though. Like, that's not even in <laughs> the movie. He, he was just like, hey, Tom Cruise here, just stand on the <laughs> Just hang out. I wish the two of you would jump from a plane. Back to the Buster Keaton of it all. I think it was uh, Roger Ebert that I was reading here uh, this morning who mentioned that there is this difference between 
a Charlie Chaplin movie and a Buster Keaton movie. And it was one of optimism. That's how he boiled it down. Whereas Buster Keaton usually plays these characters who just like constantly like get beaten sex. down, beaten down, beaten down. And he just keeps going ahead, right? He's just like, mm-hmm. I'm just whatever. Stone face, no emotion. Just like, I'm still going ahead. Whereas Charlie Chaplin, on the other hand, wanted you to sympathize with him. He wanted you so much to like him as a character, even if he was acting like a brat. Ultimately, he wanted you to care for him as a character, which is interesting. For, for me, I don't even know if it's it's that necessarily, is that I think, to me, uh, Buster Keaton was much more energized by, like, how am I going to make these shots work versus, like, let me make a great story. Yes. He really wasn't that fussy about, like, the actual story, whereas I think Chaplin was like he wanted there to be a great story attached to it as well yeah I don't have the sample data obviously because I've never other than this film we uh, allegedly haven't Mm -hmm. seen yet I haven't watched a Buster Keaton film from front to back I feel like just reputationally when we talk about Charlie Chaplin he does stunts and he does uh, physical humor but we talk about Charlie Chaplin as a storyteller and a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and we talk about Buster Keaton as a stuntman essentially and I think there's a reason for that even having watched Sherlock Jr., again, presumably, I still get the same feeling. You know, it's not so much the story that's important. I just love everything that he's doing on a technical perspective. So, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. I'm sure we'll get corrected by someone, someone on this right too. She, I, this is true. I've put a hold on it on, at the library. It's just it's not become my turn yet to read it. But there was a great Buster Keaton biography that came out last mm. year. And I just haven't been able to read it yet. Hopefully soon I'll be able to read that book and be able to report back. Yeah, I'm scanning through some of this Wikipedia uh, mm-hmm. just briefly here. And uh, he lived a life. Oh, sure did. Yeah. <laughs> I, even the stuff that I know about, even on, in this film, certain scenes happen like, oh, because I've watched documentaries and, and uh. read up on this before. I'm like, oh. That's where he broke his neck. Oh, mm-hmm. this is where he almost died again. Like I kind of knew the things that were happening in the in the background. That's, that's how annoying I am when I watch a Jackie Chan movie. I'm guessing, just to say it plainly, that means that you don't have much of a history with this movie. No, uh, especially for the fact that there are one million movies called Sherlock. Yes. So it is Which, hard. By the way, to- we should just call out as we're recording this. All of Sherlock Holmes just became part of the uh, into the public domain. Oh. Like uh, the intellectual property. So there's going to be more. So there's going to be way more because now it's like you don't even have to pay the Arthur Conan Doyle estate. It's like I can make any Sherlock thing that I want. I can't wait because... uh, If there's one thing, Dave, (laughs) we need more Sherlock and more Peter Pan stories. You know what? I don't mind Sherlock as a character. He's great. And what I hate is that hack writing is going to take over and we're going to get five films a year. Uh, we're going to get a Marvel superhero for sure. That's a mm-hmm. Sherlock now. But hopefully we'll get something good of it. Like I, I learned watching Lupin that Lupin was the French Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some argument about it predating the novels. And watching the show that they produced on Netflix with uh, Omar Sy, it's a great show. And uh, I love stuff like that, right? We just mm-hmm. watched uh, Glass Onion. Maybe that's the next thing is that uh, Benoit Blanc as Sherlock Versus, Holmes solving yeah. a mystery. Yeah. Can you two keep it in your pants? I also have not seen this movie before. I have seen a bunch of the shorts. I've also watched The Navigator. I have also seen Steamboat Bill Jr. So those are the two like, longer films nice. that uh, Buster Keaton made that I've seen. I want to do a little bit more. Most of them are available on YouTube. Like you can watch most of these things for free. So it's like not that hard to track them down. Yeah, I saw this on Tubi. Which by the way, what a great way to watch this film. Just watching along, being entertained, and then bam, <laughs> a commercial about feminine hygiene products. It's like, that's how you need to watch this movie. Listen, somebody's got to pay for the content, Kyle. And the machine isn't doing it. So I'm happy to watch. When I finally end the world, I'll let you live for 10 extra minutes. I will also say, just as an aside, I don't know if you felt the same way. 
because we I also watched it on TV. Pretty good transfer. They yeah. must have like done a reno- renovation or renovation. Um, they must have renovated it. Yeah, Mike Holmes came in and uh, put <laughs> right. in some new. What do they call it? Remaster? Remaster? What's <laughs> yeah, the word I'm thinking of? They, yeah, they rem- remastered it some way because it, it looks like pretty it. great. The contrast grid without losing the detail like you would see on a VHS or something. So yeah. it looked clean. It is uh, archived. This film, so it's possible. Yeah. So maybe they're just taking it from the archives because yeah, it looks like it's coming from the negative to me. But uh, I've never watched this movie. But as it turns out. I've seen a bunch of the scenes from this movie before. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. right. That's the thing with Buster Keaton. Uh, Charlie mm. Chaplin is similar, but Buster Keaton in particular, I just feel like every time I see a bit, something familiar about him. Well, I'm excited to kind of dig into this a little bit deeper. So let's do this. Let's go for a bit of a break. We'll go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about Sherlock Jr. Dave, how are you at doing billiard trick shots you know what i spent some time in high school loitering at pool halls and i'm pretty fucking terrible at it so snooker is a big thing in the uk Mm -hmm. and therefore a big thing in hong kong and i had a few red balls uh wow and i have a few chinese friends that love uh snooker and pool uh nobody plays nine ball in toronto i don't know why that game exists and there's a couple korean guys that lived in pool halls so when i see them shoot much like we're going to see in this film, it doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. Yeah, how are you doing this? I just like balls, Dave. So, Conde versus the <laughs> Machine the is a proud... <laughs> Conde versus the Machine, of course, is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you have to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. And if you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. You can learn more by going over to parkpower.ca. I had someone from my other podcast putting it together write to me angrily that I don't pronounce my T's properly. What? So you'd listen for it, folks. Apparently, it's a thing in North America that North Americans do, and he was very upset that I was doing wait, it. Wait, wait, give me an example. <laughs> Instead of saying, like, point, I'll say point. Like, it turns into a D instead mm, of a T. Did it? I don't know. Anyways, he called me out, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, so, Kyle, we're part of the Alberta Podcast Network. We are. That means that there's a network of Alberta podcasts that we're a part of. There is. And today's sponsorship message is kind of shouting out those podcasts that are partnered in our network that are all from Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them actually uh, also is focused on movies. They're called Read Podcasting. And Essentially, what this nice lady Lucia does, Lucia's latest episode, repodcasting's the latest episode, they're watching Sleepless in Seattle, Kyle, and they're asking the question, uh, would this movie have been different if it wasn't Meg Ryan in a leading role? And I say, um, I don't know. Who would Is have that been a world better? we want to live in, though? Is that a world <laughs> we want to live in? What about, uh, I don't know, Meghan Markle? Wow. Well, all right, let's not get political over here. Anyways, where, where can people find this this great podcast? I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. No, they've got a website if you want to go direct mm-hmm. at repodcasting.bluebury.net. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.net. Or you can just go to albertapodcastnetwork.com and check out the homepage because we've got a listing of everybody that's on there. 
All right, Dave, we have sat down and watched this uh, film, only 44 minutes long, so it was a pretty breezy watch here for breezy. us. We should do a scenario to let people understand what this movie is about. So let's say that you and I are... Uh, at a carnival. Uh, at a car- <laughs> That's an old-timey white person thing, Yeah, we're at a thing, carnival. Right? Carnival? We're, we're, th- we're throwing darts at balloons, uh, eating caramel corn. Throwing darts? And a young newsboy rushes up to us he's wearing his little cabbie hat and overalls and no shoes on yeah yeah. and uh thrusts he has no shoes but where did he get the suspenders i mean it's just fascinating he just thrusts a uh, different different vhs copy of sherlock jr into our hands he's like he hands you a reel right (laughs) please tell me what is this about how would you answer that question what is this movie about this is i i think i would have to preface it and say this is a buster keaton film in which a projectionist who wants to also be a private detective must solve a crime to save his love, his engagement, to win the heart of the woman he loves. He falls asleep and imagines himself in a movie for, well, uh, for don't, a good... Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I wow. mean, we, we spoil this pretty quickly, but I mean, that's what the majority of this movie is too, is him imagining himself inside of a movie. It's like the best. Yeah, that's an amazing, amazing trick. Yes. So what were your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll give you some context. It was pretty interesting. My son Emerson, who's still only eight and a half, decided he wanted to wait up for New Year's. Okay. And we had this one hour buffer where we didn't know what else to do. It's so nice that you were doing this, of course, over Zoom with the rest of your family. So to, you know, I... Sustain uh, our fiction that we're doing. So I, so I suggested that I have this 45 minute movie that I've got to watch. It's funny. It's black and white, and it's a silent film. Well, you, you're setting him up not for success right from the very get-go. Well, okay. here's the thing. So, uh, after a groan and an eye roll, I was mm-hmm. like, well, we have nothing else. Let's just turn it on. And they fucking loved it, Kyle. Oh, really? Oh, I yes. honestly thought you were saying this up to be like, they were out in like two minutes. No, <laughs> and this is why Buster Keaton has power. This is why Jackie Chan had power. And this is why people pay money to watch Tom Cruise almost kill himself. There's something uniquely interesting when a camera set up that you know it can't be a double and then mm-hmm. a person will fall flat on his face his back his leg off a three-story tall building into a car or hang off a fucking water tower and have what did it look like 50 a thousand gallon i don't know Gallons, how much yeah, water yeah. he should have drowned well and emerson's again, cackling he almost did but yes right. keep going <laughs> emerson's cackling and then for me as the film lover yeah those little things like I was not expecting the uh, hallucination scene. I love that. The double exposure for him to become a ghost or his yeah. uh, dream. Oh, my God. I have to tell you, the trick of him jumping into the movie screen Amazing. still blew me away. Yeah. I was like, this movie's 100 years old and I did not see him jumping into the movie screen just like well, he did there. Even when the camera's kind of going into the center of the auditorium and he's walking up, I'm like... I was thinking, okay, it's set up as a stage. He's probably going to try to get into this movie. But when it happens, you're like, that looks amazing. And when they're doing all the jump cuts, it's going from scene to scene. I mean, you know, it's not perfect. It must be so hard to line up. And they still can't do it well now. Apparently, uh, they were using landscaping equipment and stuff like that to like try and get him into the same position in each frame. With like, uh, what do you call those? The yeah, I'm trying to remember the what they're called. Things. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I mean, if you look at modern movies, they have trouble with it even in today's modern age, um, doing these sort of like uh, time passage stuff. But it looks great. And Emerson was howling by the end. You know, those parts where he inverts himself in a big snow drift. It just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just amazing. You know, there are uh, some old-fashioned things like, you know, 
nitpicking like they hold sometimes on a face too long like sure. in the editing and uh, and then the story is like we said at the beginning of the episode the story's not the important part there's some cultural coding like who's the dad why is the ring matter you know like how do you show affection it's you know so that's very old-timey you and i can understand a little bit well, of the language because we've watched yeah, old I mean, films but that's the thing with, with, with old films you have to take some of these things with a grain of salt like he has to come up with something that says poison on it because yeah. of course you do film. in a silent right. film because you right. can't be subtle about it i think there is that cutting thing that just you can tell right away that it's an older film i, I you also have to put this into context of course because there were films we made from as long ago as like the late 1800s, but really Hollywood was, I don't know, just over a decade old at this yeah. point. Like it was not like a, it's still a new it's medium a that people are faring yeah, out a in a language that's being built up around it. So he's, he's developing that language mm -hmm. that we use today, right? If only you could be as innovative as podcasters. As a director and as a choreographer, it is, uh, it is fun. And the other thing, you know, my pet peeve with my, we just watched Captain America. This is the other thing we did last night, uh, or on New Year's Eve, we tried to watch Captain America Winter Soldier, uh, which I actually like, but the shaky cam thing is so fucking annoying. Mm. You know, I hate that. So having Buster Keaton have this giant camera <laughs> on whatever wooden structure would have to hold this thing up, but he frames everything so cleanly so that you know when the stunt's going to happen, you can see essentially everything. There are a couple, um, I think the train sequence, there's one or two where they couldn't line the camera properly when they had to cut a reel but uh it just lets you be in that moment for a stunt which i love i love seeing it i think too you know as a fan of tom cruise's uh and jack jackie chan's physical comedy it's just it still holds up it doesn't look old-timey i love it it was uh it was fun there's two that still kind of blow me away which is him on the back of that motorbike and going over oh, the two yeah. trucks that the are front. crossing like yeah, yeah, oh my yeah. god like that has to be like timed so perfectly to get that there's also and for i should point out for decades, people did not know how he did this trick, which is him jumping into the, oh, the uh, dress, the dress yeah. and then walking away and he's not behind her anymore. It's crazy. Um, it was revealed later on, but he actually took that to his grave. He did never explain how he did that thing. Wait, what, what was the trick? So the trick is... Like, it's what a shitty way to end thought. Like, oh, what? they revealed it and then you just walked away sure. from and it. Just, and just walk away from it. You can read up on it. Come on. No, uh, it was developed by his dad in the vaudeville act. So he, he used to do this in the vaudeville act as well. So it's this like, I'm not going to take time to explain it intricately and I'll do a bad job. But essentially what is going on, the old woman who is standing there is actually lying horizontal. And so he jumps through, she flips down and then she walks forward while he's still laying behind her. <laughs> so she can stand against a flat wall and it looks like he's he going through it and then she can come forward without there being a cut happening to explain what's going on so it's this it, intricate thing underneath the dress that is happening yeah, yeah peeked over and emerson's jaw was agape yeah <laughs> it's like a cartoon right you're just like what the hell like, just happened you do that yeah. but there's even this the fun things of him grabbing hold of that big um like crossing guard arm to go into yes. the back of the car there's uh and, and the whole billiards scene is so fun like i know that that is also movie trickery to a, to a large extent they're using uh, magnets for some of the stuff that they're maybe. doing in that but you, I love, you can, have you not have you not watched like trick shot masters no i have i'm just saying that it's possible that he knew i don't how to know do if they were trick shot artists who who he hired to go and and do I don't these know. shots i Maybe wonder if he did. could do it because you don't need to do those in a single take and true uh, enough yeah spinning the ball is not difficult all i'm saying but. is that i love the the setup and payoff of that it's like there's this exploding ball it's ah, never hit and yeah. then finally does get hit and you're like uh 
oh, it doesn't explode, okay, because the other thing is over here. It's such a great little setup and payoff to that entire scene. I was worried in the setup because it felt like it took too long to set up all the traps. And it was, mm -hmm. I was like, I was expecting, like Home Alone, I was expecting 15 of them. And there were essentially two, it was a bomb and an axe. Yeah. And then when it starts to open up and then now there's poison, there's this and, and uh, it was still fun. It was great. I, I loved it. We were laughing because putting a trick shot into that sequence where he could die was just hilarious. One of my, f the, the things that actually made me laugh pretty hard and I was not expecting it, which is at the very, very beginning where he's sweeping up after the movie, finds a dollar, someone yes. comes and says like, I'm looking for a dollar. He's like, describe it. And I just love that <laughs> as a, just a joke setup. It's like, tell me what it looks like. We all had a good laugh in the, uh, in the punchline. I, I laughed the most in that first bit because uh, I thought it was hilarious too, that he's describing a dollar bill. Emerson's never seen a dollar bill. Right. So, um, you know what's great about storytelling? I know it's not a narrative the way, let's say, uh, just to compare Charlie Chaplin when we watch City Lights, uh, it's not a narrative, but he is able in that two minute sequence to show empathy for this character because the character you know would take the dollar but then when the second lady comes in and she's like so sad he gives her like, the dollar he bye. can't afford yeah. to lose now it's great i think the last thing i just wanted to point out just as like a i don't know like state of the industry at the time like the jazz singer was i forget three or four years away so this is really at the tail end of really what they call the silent era like by 1929 1930 like that is going away like it's like that is so passe by that talkies time. Mm -hmm. We're about to get our talkies. Yeah. That's right. The other thing to realize, and this is again, if you do go and never watch the movie Babylon, this does do a good job of, of showing that they were pumping these movies out. I think oh, people yeah. have it in their head that like only 10 movies a year were happening no, in the 1920s. Like 10 and there's a like month. Yeah. hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of these movies were being made because a normal one of these types of comedies was like a week, maybe, that you were spending. We'll talk a little bit here in a moment about how long this one went for, but. For the most part, like these were getting pumped out. Like you were doing like 20 of these a year. So it's like, we're not spending a lot of time on I think these. we forget that too, because a lot of them are lost to time. You know? Well, yeah, there's like 90% of silent films are gone. Like we yeah. just don't have a copy of them anymore. Just, yeah, you might see a news article or something referring to, I mean, I want to say TV because now that we have streaming, TV just exists until the rights are disappearing. Yeah, but the, the, the only, I guess, example that's happening right now, like this is one thing that piracy is actually I guess a good thing for is the preservation aspect, especially with like HBO, which has been being dragged through the coals here every couple of weeks because their thing right now is just to take things off of their service and then not allow them on other places either. So essentially just making them non-existent well, it's, anymore. Uh, it's the fine art scam, right? Yeah. It's creating an artificial demand so that when they release a Blu-ray or a, they have a HBO plus plus service in 10 years and you're like, oh, well now you can watch Game of Thrones. It's just right. going to cost you a hundred dollars a month and people will pay. Well, mm -hmm. that's just how that scam works, which is frustrating. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, talk about some of this backstory here. So this Davitron was a movie that opened up on April 21st, 1924, <laughs> currently rated 4.3 on Letterboxd. Uh, 8.2 on IMDb. There is no available rating on Metacritic and on Rotten Tomatoes from 27 critics, it has a 93%. And from 5,000 plus users, it has a 95%. I don't know where it ends up on those two lists, by the way, on the top 250. Letterboxd actually went down this morning, so I couldn't yeah, double check. Yeah, I tried to some look too. And I was telling me I didn't uh, have access to it anymore. Correct. And I started shedding a tear until I realized it's just an app, Kyle. It no, does not need my to life. define your it life. Is life. <laughs> okay, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray, so you can definitely go and buy this. But it is, like I said, 
There's a book that just fell off my shelf. But it is there currently here? in the public domain, so you can find it on Tubi, and it's on YouTube for free. I do not know what the budget was for this movie, but I do know that it made $448,000 at the box office, of which is $7.7 million if you adjust it for inflation, uh, which is a touch on the low side. Still pretty good. It's like not a flop or well, anything. I but- mean... I, 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 I've said this since the beginning of this podcast. Like, what are people paying to get into the theater? A oh, nickel? Uh, yeah, like five cents, probably. I'm telling you, if we looked at the volume, it's probably obscene. I mean, this is just coming out of the, de- uh, going into the depression. This is not, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just, it, it's a lot. That's a lot of people watching. It's a, a lot of people. A, yeah. a film, yeah. Plot description is a film projectionist longs to be a detective and puts his meager skills to work when he is framed by a rival for sealing his girlfriend's father's pocket watch. Dave, now is the time where we get to play everyone's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, that, tag. that tag. So, you know, when you go into the movie theater, you are greeted with that row of posters. They entice you to go and see movies because they have that little phrase that usually happens on the poster where it's like, mm, oh, yes, this was what my appetite. Yeah. Maybe you, Dave, are one of the people that are going to be in line to watch Megan. You're okay. so... You're jonesing for your yeah. Megan fix. Megan, yes. What is it? She's a little robot girl, and it's like a semi-horror film, apparently, that's in theaters right oh, now. Oh, yeah. It's right up my alley. People are talking about it, Dave. Yeah. Dozens of people the are buzz. talking about it. <laughs> I, I can't hear anything over the din of the buzz. Anyways, there is apparently a tagline for this film, although I kind of call shenanigans on this, but it, it does have a tagline uh, listed. So, Dave, do you think the tagline for this movie was, Keaton is back to make you laugh? Is it? Every inch of footage holds a laugh, or is it, you won't stop laughing? <laughs> I'm, if I assume that it's not actually from the film, but from a DVD release, I'm going to go with A. Keaton is back to make you laugh. You are incorrect. Damn it. It's every inch of footage holds a laugh. Good. It's like pornographic. Nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So six laughs. Uh, he is not ribbed for your pleasure, though, unfortunately. So this stars, about dots? Bu- the stars Buster Keaton as the projectionist, Catherine McGuire as the girl, Ward Crane as the local chic, and Erwin Connolly as the hired man. I wonder if you could get away calling like a rich person a chic anymore. No. I actually <laughs> did not realize that that was just a catch-all term in the 20s for a rich yeah. person. <laughs> yeah. I do like... The little touch that he's actually broke, which I think is funny, but mm-hmm. anyways. How about Catherine McGuire? I know you're a big McGuire head. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me and Katie, I, you know, we, we like to call her Katie Cat with two Ks. No, I don't know anything about anybody else. No. I didn't look she at She was, else, um, so. never became like super popular. It was supposed to be another woman that Buster yes. wanted for this movie, but she had to drop it because of being sick or something like that. Yeah, I don't recognize the other woman either. Um, Marion Harlan. She yeah. was in a bunch of his other films or a couple of his other movies. Yeah. Basically, if you, if no one, if you're listening to this and you're unaware, one of the things that uh, Buster King kind of made, if you want to call him the auteur, I love that you still air quote that, but it's just part of your vocabulary now. You should just, just embrace it. He had, much like a Wes Anderson, had this group of people that he just worked with all the time. So if you watch a bunch, it's like, oh, it's like the same actors. It was the same cinematographers. It was the same writers. It was the same everything. It was just, he just worked with the same group of people over and over and over again. To that point, cinematography is by two people, Byron Houck and Elgin Leslie. Their top four on IMDb are this movie. The Tourist, Seven Chances, and The Navigator. Two of those are from 1925, one from 1924. All of them are from Buster Keaton. Written by 
uh, Gene C. Have, Joseph A. Mitchell, and Clyde Bruckman, and are directed by Buster Keaton. <laughs> now you'll notice my upward inflection on that. Yeah, because there's a little bit good of lead a uh, good lead into the little, controversy. There's a yeah. bit of a controversy on who actually directed this movie, but we'll get to that. Dave, Kyle's just waiting to say fatty. Dave, what do you know about <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle? Uh, well, I've heard the name as a comedian, but doing a precursor mm. reading, apparently he was a rapist too. So let's talk about that. Well, that is also has some question marks beside it too. But yes, here is the very compressed history. This is the third and last time I'll say this, also referenced in the movie Babylon. But if you read up about Buster Keaton in any depth, you will absolutely see Fatty Arbuckle's name talked about, referenced, put beside his name. Arbuckle is the person who basically like discovered Buster Keaton on the vaudeville circuit and invited him to come and make movies in the first place. For most of Buster Keaton's short films up until 1924, you'll see co-directing credits. So it's Buster Keaton and Fatty Arbuckle. They, they both show up in the credits. Fatty Arbuckle was a huge silent film star, like huge, huge, huge. And as his name might suggest to you, he was a bit of a big man. Dave. Pretty fat. He liked to also wear buckles. I mean, he, he loved buckles. Buckles. Great at physical comedy, uh, like I said, stars in a bunch of those early Buster Keaton shorts as well. But he's also famous for being one of the first Hollywood celebrities to find themselves in a sex scandal. Uh, namely, an accusation of him raping actress Virginia Rapp. I'm not going to get into the specifics because it doesn't really pertain to this movie in particular. I will point people towards the podcast, You Must Remember This, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Karina Longworth over there is the host. Does huge amounts of research into specific topics and she did an entire season on uh, silent film stars and there's an entire episode on this case specifically uh, and if i'm not forgetting things this is where the question mark comes up and it really comes down as like we just don't know enough information to say one way or the other there is some evidence to say that this was a bit of a frame job but also he was known as being a little bit handsy too to other people. So it's one of those everybody things was like, in I don't... this era, right? If you look at any representation, not just on film, but like even in documentary um, filmmaking, television shows, you know, it was, uh, it was just a thing. Men mm -hmm. just walked around touching things, you know, men yeah. love touching things. But when I read about Buster bringing Fatty onto this project, it sounds like Fatty also had a bit of a temperament problem. Oh yeah, yeah. That, and that's the big thing, right? Is like, while this movie is shooting, the trial I think is about to happen or it, uh, is happening. Yeah, the third Whatever, one. Yeah. It, uh, so the public had turned against them. That's the big thing to take on, uh, on about this is that the public is like, nope, we don't want to see Fatty Arbuckle in anything anymore. Like there was a really a vehement like <laughs> turn against him. I should point out he was eventually acquitted of the whole thing after going through trial. He does bring Fatty Arbuckle onto the project, but does not credit him. They actually make up a fake name. Buster says it was because of the mental anguish that Fatty was in that uh, Arbuckle was just like mean and abusive to people on set. So eventually Keaton just kicks him off, puts him onto another project that he'll star in, but like just gets him off this movie so he doesn't have to deal with it anymore. The controversy is that uh, Arbuckle's second wife completely disputes this and says that Arbuckle was much more involved in that and should get way more credit for the success of this movie. I'll just let people take that into their own consideration. Sour grapes, baby. We'll never know. And yeah. when you have such a prickly situation, I don't think, I just feel like if that were true, Fatty seems like the type of person who would have made a case about it. Seems like somebody is projecting. Regardless of, of all of that information, Basically, Buster Keaton and Fatty Arbuckle have break ties at this point, and 
Buster goes on his own way. Well, Buster's about to succumb to the alcohol as well. Yeah, and Fatty dies here pretty soon after this anyways. But this uh, the whole project started off with Buster's idea. And that's important because he just had this idea of a man walking into a movie screen. And then he basically made everything else around this movie because he wanted to do that one sequence. One of the other things that can't be disputed is that this is some of the most in- intense special effects that Keaton ever did inside of a movie. This movie actually took four months to shoot. For what it is, that is like egregiously long for how long these shoots usually took. He James cameron did. Well, really, like in the time would have. Like if we were talking about like Birth of a Nation or some like big epic silent film, yeah, you, you could take months to shoot that. But for a comedy short or comedy, like whatever this is, five reel, yeah, that is like so long to spend uh, shooting it. Basically, he just had to perfect these sequences. He really wanted them to be like clean, clean and look good. I will say that the, the transfer that we watched, I don't know if it is the movie that does this, but there seem to be drop frames every so often. So I don't know if that's just the print that they're working off of or if that was true even at the time. I've operated a hand crank eight millimeter camera before. I don't know, you know, if thinking back at what it meant to shoot film we don't i don't know a a real film academic will know what the frame rates are how they would have developed this what would have been left on a reel to remaster etc so it's hard but there's a reason why old-timey films have a particular lilt if you will Mm -hmm. and the chase scenes they're probably cutting out every other frame just to add to the spice so someone would have to write in because this would have still been hand cranked i actually don't know technically if these are 24 frames per second i I doubt they are yeah yeah i don't think that had been like made yet to be like the standard to be shooting in yeah it's tough i yeah we need uh someone smart unlike us to give us an actual uh Mm -hmm. red opinion regardless one of the big things that we've already mentioned is just like jackie chan just like tom cruise there's a bunch of accidents that happened on this film namely the most famous one is that when he's running across the train grabs a hold of the water spout and then the water comes out and like pushes him down to the train tracks there was so much force that that water came out that he actually knocked himself out. So that's why it takes him so long to walk out of that spray. So he literally knocked himself cold. And also, after that, he suffered from severe headaches, was dizzy a bunch of the time. And it wasn't until years later when a doctor instructed him that they discovered he broke his neck when that happened. <laughs> that is a thing that happened on this movie. So this is why people in the past were tougher than us, because he thought he just had a sore neck and it was broken. Yeah. For like 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I know. Whatever. Walk it <laughs> this, off. This is why they make fun of us as we grow up. They're like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? That's just your finger. You don't need it. There, there was also other close scrapes. The the other like making of behind the scenes I just remember from a documentary I watched, that part where he almost gets hit by a train, like he's going through, goes, oh, yeah. gets hit by a train and a car and a bunch yeah, of yeah, other yeah. stuff. They do that in reverse. So he's actually being pulled forwards <laughs> while yeah, everything yeah. else is going backwards. So, so it looks like he's almost getting hit, but it's all just a reversed. Smart. Smart. Yeah, those scenes, you're always like now, I'm looking for a wire or a guide or Mm -hmm. like a track, but that makes much more sense if they were, it's such a smart way to go through that, right? Especially with the technology of the time. It would be difficult now, of course. Now, the original cut of this movie was actually a lot longer. It was actually over an hour in a bit, so it would have been considered a feature film at that point, but Buster took this to a couple of test audiences, and the first test audience he didn't think was laughing enough, so he cut a bunch of stuff out. So to a second test audience who actually liked it less, so he even cut some more stuff out until we get what we saw here. And through the whole making of this, he was kicked off a couple of times and then brought back on. It was a whole big kind of mess in the production. 
But eventually, we get the 44-minute film that we see here today. Now, like I said, it didn't make like a huge amount at the box office just compared to how much the production cost. But again, it wasn't considered like a huge failure. But he did mention years later that it was like one of his lesser pictures, only if you base it on the amount of money it made versus time spent on making it sort of thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Four months is a long time for a silent film. Yeah. It also received mixed reviews at the time. The magazine Picture Play wrote that it was devoid of ingenuity and originality and Variety wrote that it was about as funny as a hospital operating room. Wow. That seems personal, the second one. Eh? <laughs> Doesn't it? It's yeah. like an axe to grind. That, you know what? That was probably a critic who's, uh, who'd lost uh, a woman to a rival and just couldn't handle the trauma watching this film. There was a Sherlock who came into his life and took his woman away from him. No, I think the obvious. Uh, he's probably a projectionist and he didn't mm-hmm. have the, uh, the wit to get back. And he's just watching this like sad sacking. Like, that's not funny. It's too he, real. He broke his neck and actually went to the hospital. And he was like, no, you took away everything. So in the intervening 100 years, this has become probably the most beloved of the Buster Keaton films. If you look at like consensus online, it's the only one of his movies that features on the letterbox top 250. Uh, in 2000, AFI, the American Film Institute, named it the 62nd funniest movie of all time. In 2005, so it was named by right? time. What's that? How do you say it's funnier than another movie? It's such a weird thing to have a list about. I know we've it's talked about this before. It's the funniest movies of all time. I don't know. It's a, like who, everybody oh said what you find it, funny it, is it different than what I find funny. It was the 62nd uh, position on movies that people found funny. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> like who's people? I wouldn't uh, spend more time on this. <laughs> in 2005, it was named by Time Magazine as one of the top 100 movies of all time. Oh. It's been preserved by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In 2012, it was number 59 on the Sight and Sound poll. And as of January 1st, 2020, it is in the public domain, so you can remix this as much as your heart's content. So you don't even have to worry about someone hitting you for copyright infringement. Great. When he walks, the entire Sherlock scene itself is a dream sequence that's shot straightforwardly. What's the right word? It's entirely a dream sequence. And from the moment they do the double exposure where he steps out of his body uh, through the whole Sherlock scene... And then in the end, I love the bit where he's watching the screen to learn how to romance his girl. I mean, that's hilarious too. There's so much technical craft in in those pieces. And I think that it's important. I don't think it's the first time someone's done a double exposure to have ghosts in a film. I don't think it's the first time to do any of these things. It's just just worked really well to a perfection. And it makes sense that he spent so much time on it. It's so clean. I don't know why those two sad sacks didn't like it, but... uh, I mean, it's one of those things that there was a conversation about about is like innovation versus iteration right whereas like yeah this is not i don't think innovating necessarily anything it's just a really great iteration of something all the stuff that has come before it like we started off this conversation talking about like whodunits and that type of thing if someone was to make a movie set on a train and solving a mystery, it's not like that's the first movie to do it. But you can like, knock it, you can make you can a knock it out of the park if you try and make this a really good version of that you know, thing. I still like Kenneth Branagh a lot more. I liked Hamlet a lot, but he needs to leave Hercule Poirot alone. Now there's four more movies coming, Dave, so I know. suck it up. They're fucking terrible. But you would recommend people go and watch this? This film, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's free outside Canada, but it's on Tubi. It is, 100%. If you go onto YouTube, you can watch this no matter where you're at. I would definitely tell people to watch it. The caveat is it's a silent film and there's going to be some uh, low points, but uh, it's fun. It's fun. You know, I think to just give it a chance, this is a movie that uh, anyone can enjoy. So, yes. 
Me too. We are done here. We have now come to the part of our show called Critics' Choice. Now, normally we go and discover what critics thought at the time this movie was released. That proved a bit difficult for me, so I'm just going to use Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael again, who did retrospectives uh, on this movie. Both of them very much like this movie, and Roger Ebert wrote, It's said that Chaplin wanted you to like him, but Keaton didn't care. I think he cared, but was too proud to ask. His films avoid the pathos and sentiment of the Chaplin pictures and usually feature a jaunty young man who sees an objective and goes after it in the face of the most daunting obstacles. Buster survives tornadoes, waterfalls, avalanches of boulders, and falls from great heights, and never pauses to take a bow. He has his eye on his goal, and his movies, seen as a group, are like a sustained act of optimism in the face of adversity. Surprising how, without asking, he earns our admiration and tenderness. I was wondering why at the beginning you kept talking about optimism. It's because you're obsessed with Roger Ebert. I, it's such a weird way to, to frame Buster Keaton. Why use the word optimism? I'll just speak for myself. I, I don't know when he wrote this, but I think uh, as you get older, it feels like pessimism is like the default position for most people where it's cool to just be like upset and mad about the state of the world and so when you see things are like actually this is a, a far more hopeful message it's not uh, stuck in the mire and grimness of of everyday life that can seem like the wrong way or like uh, the childish way to behave now i don't know if buster keaton had any feigns of that being his persona but i think it's just a uh, one of the things that happened with watching it well just i i would characterize so much of comedy, particularly silent film comedy, to be exactly the same. I mean, certainly mm. Charlie Chaplin has a different focus on telling a more complete story rather than worrying about all these technical stunts per se. But I mean, you don't leave a Charlie Chaplin film thinking, oh, well, you know what? Fuck it. Everything sucks anyways, man. So I'm just going to stop trying. Like that's not, so it's just a weird word. I mean, if you want to talk about ingenuity for his technical craft or you want to talk about his physicality, it's one thing. Optimism is a weird word for me. It seems so psychological for a guy who's famous for jumping off of tall things. So, I don't mm -hmm. know. Pauline Kael wrote, the title of this Buster Keaton comedy doesn't do justice to what the movie is about. Keaton plays a projectionist who, while running a movie called Hearts and Pearls, enters the screen and becomes involved with the characters. Directed by Keaton, it's a wonderfully imaginative film full of extraordinary tricks so immaculately executed that they look simple. It's a piece of Native American surrealism. I think that is also the trick of Buster Keaton, just knowing that the amount of time he took to get these perfect, like he would mm. do take after take of certain things. It is, I think, something we take for granted, which is like, oh, he did this. It was so simple for him to do. It's like, no, it, like he had to work hard to make it look like it was nothing. I think that's probably why Jackie Chan started including. I know there's a story about how somebody else's decision, but I think that's the power. And Tom Cruise does it, I think, on the extras on the DVDs. Mm -hmm. and I think they want you to know that you can't do this. You shouldn't do it at all <laughs> in the first place. I think it's important to know that uh, Buster Keaton probably didn't just injure himself in the last take. He was probably nursing a couple of broken bones each time anyway. Broken anyways. his neck, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Live and die for the art, Kyle. Just like us in podcasting. Like mm -hmm. I've got a- Yeah, we're, we're doing all of this for real, in real time. No, most people don't realize that. I mean, I've been carrying a broken ego for probably 15 years and I keep, keep putting myself out there, so. I got a paper cut opening the coffee this morning, so. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Uh, well, my life doesn't make sense sometimes, Dave. But Dave, we do ask this question each and every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think there's a hurdle because people will automatically disregard silent film. But I think that I saw it hold uh, quite a lot of weight with my family who never would put this on for themselves. And uh, as far as cultural relevance, I think we see the impact 
of his character in modern filmmaking anyways, both technically and with his persona. So Yeah, like, I'm going to be a guessing yes, but I mean, it is one of those things where you do have to take into account the time it was made. Give it five minutes, and I think you'll feel the energy of this movie behind it. And like I said, the fact that I have not ever sat down and watched this movie, and I knew four of the scenes in it already, I'm like, it has permeated the culture somehow where I know these four scenes. And just to remind anyone who's listening, okay, I lived in a time before YouTube, and I knew who he was Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it's because of the accessibility of a clip that you thumb on a f- on what we call a phone these days. Like even in the old days, you knew Ch- Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, uh, even if you couldn't sit down with a VHS copy of their entire film. So that's how powerful these scenes are. It's, it's just fascinating, like the uh, impact a few of these people have. Well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. Uh, what do you think? We'd love to hear what you have to say. You can send feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel, and if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie, Dave. This is going to go on to our top 250 list um, that we're picking through. But what would you give this movie out of five? I think there are... A few little technical nitpicks, so I'm going to go with a 4.5. Mm-hmm. I uh, really enjoyed my time with this 45-minute uh, wonder. You know, is it perfect, Kyle? Well, my answer is yes, it is perfect. <laughs> I give this a 5 out of 5. I thought this was brilliant. I've, I've said this even on our City Lights episode. I think that Charlie Chaplin was a genius. He was able to do so many oh, cool yeah. things. I'm just a Buster Keaton guy. I think it's just something about him that just makes me love everything that he does. So even if I can acknowledge that there's some imperfections or some slight imperfections, like whatever, I'm in this for the entire ride. Well, it's <laughs> this also, 44 minute ride. It's also our 0.5 boost anyways. So, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what, optimist, you're going to throw That's in right. an extra 0.5 for really no good reason. So... No, it's, it's a it's perfect, part. perfect film. It is only going to tie with one other film on this top 250 list that we're picking through. So Dave, for you, is this better or worse than Fight Club? Oh, really? Fight Club's at the top. Wait, what did, uh, what did we do last year for the top 250? Like Yee and stuff, they, they don't even come close? Nope. Interesting. Fight Club. Is Fight Club in the letterbox to top 250? It was when we talked about it. Interesting. Interesting. That's a weird one. How do you compare these two movies? They're fundamentally different in every respect. Yeah, in, in pretty much every way. Other than you are watching two people who enjoy being punched in the face. <laughs> and it is weird that, 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 that Buster Keaton walks around with a cigarette in his mouth, totally shirtless and like, cut <laughs> in this movie. That is weird when that happens. Uh, yeah, it's a tough one. Just being the sad sack, I would probably watch Fight Club first. That's a tough one. What about you? Where are you leaning on this? It's too hard. Well, this is the, that it's is the hard one. thing. I mean, like, I'm attempting to do this myself and make my own top 40 list of the movies that have come out since I was born. That's my little project I'm doing this year. And this always happens. It's like, well, like, if we're talking about comedy and, like, dedication to craft, like, yeah, I'm going to go with Sherlock Jr. If I'm looking for, like, a satirical takedown of the system and like really great acting and interesting camera movements well yeah fight club is obvious pick it's tough like one. they're two completely different things that they're trying to do i think ultimately even though i gave this a perfect score and did not give a perfect score to fight club i still would probably 
say like Fight Club probably has the edge, but slight, slight for me. I'm I'm just surprised it's these two and there aren't more that are higher. Like, didn't E.T. score the same thing? Or E.T.'s not in the top 250, so. What else did we watch? Godfather Part 2? Yeah, so our top five right now is The Thing, The Apartment, Yee Yee, Fight Club, and Spirited Away. So this is either going to be the number two or the number three position is what we're putting oh, in. Oh, what into. was number one? Spirited Away? Spirited Away. Yeah. We double five that. Interesting. All right. Well, yeah, let's put it above for now. I'm surprised Fight Club is even in TV. I mean, I, I don't disagree with so it. So you want to put it above Fight Club is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, I think so. Oh, no, sorry. I, th- I meant uh, Fight Club above it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I thought. But yeah. then you said something different. At least I pronounced my T. Uh, so that means that entering our list at the new number three position in the Letterbox Top 250 is going to be Sherlock Jr. right below Fight Club and right above Yee Yee. Hmm. So we should probably find out what we are watching next week, Dave. I'm just going to push this button here. Oh, this has been a movie on my list of shame for many, many years. We're going to go and watch Bicycle Thieves. Nothing. Really? Oh, yeah. this is like one of the all-time classic movies, apparently, from international cinema. It used to be... I learned it as the bicycle thief when I was in university, but it's since okay. been better translated to be called bicycle thieves. Oh, I'm so. going to Google it since Letterbox is down. One of uh, Scorsese's favorite movies. I know that. I'm sure your son will be loving it when no, you watch it with no him. No way anyone will watch this one. <laughs> back, uh, back to hiding in my room. I, I don't know what we should do. Should we just drop off D.D. Hess out of like the... The escape shuttle I mean, here if now? by drop off, you mean uh, jettison them into the vacuum of space. I'm okay with that. Great. Yeah. Well, then push that jettison button that's I, in front I'm of you. I'm pretty sure it's your turn to push the button. I don't need that on my conscience. Oh, help. All right. Flushed out like a bad habit, Dave. I'm, th- I'm feeling <laughs> good about this year. Yeah, murder will do that to you. If only you could be as innovative as podcasters.